We are beginning Paul's final section of this letter this morning. The first two chapters, Galatians 1 and 2, Paul dealt with uh, his personal defense. His personal defense of his apostleship and his personal defense of the gospel. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul used a theological defense. He went all the way back to Father Abraham and he laid out what would be a case-closed theological defense of the gospel. It is Christ's work in us. Now, in the closing two chapters, Paul moves into a practical application. A practical application for the churches. What are the results of the gospel? It's the so what. So you believe this. This happened to Paul. What now happens in the churches? What takes place because of the work of the gospel? How will local faith families demonstrate the power of the gospel in lives brought together by the Holy Spirit? So Paul declares these communities, they're made up of people. They're all different, come from different backgrounds. They like different things. They have different preferences from all over the country, even all over the world, and they're brought together. And what unites them? What happens when these gatherings of believers reflect not someone's systems of rules and laws, but the glory of God revealed in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's radically different. Two different worlds. Now, everybody in here this morning can fall in. I'm going to use the graphic, but I'm going to change the graphic a little bit from last Sunday to today. Last Sunday, I used this graphic and this line represented truth. Here's the gospel truth. Here's the word of God. Above it, was legalism. Below it was being liberal, do whatever you want to do. I'm free to do what I want. This week, I'm going to change this a little bit because everyone in here can fall in one of these two categories. And generally, they marry each other. The legalist is the rules, 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 schedule, 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 and here's how everything goes. And they usually tend to marry the person's like, party, and it doesn't matter, and it's great. And then they wonder, like, what happened to you? What happened to you? And now we're in a headbutt called marriage, this conflict, and I wondering how come you're not coming to my side and you're not coming to my side. Am I describing was relationships, right? Okay, this is relationships. And this is God's way of working in us to avoid two ditches. Okay, the legalist is, I was born in a pastor's home, and I was this, and I went to all the youth camps, and I did all these things, all these things. I was baptized. I was confirmed. All of the whatever you want to put in the, the legalist, and therefore I'm not like them. And over here in the other ditch is the we're free to do whatever we want to do and the rebel and rebellion and, you know, describing any of you or maybe the child you're raising. And I've got some kids that are like, you know, I remember when I got pulled over in Kentucky at a Christmas. We were almost there, almost to our exit. State trooper pulled us over. Sophie was in her uh, seat behind me. State trooper comes up, Kentucky state trooper. Roll down the window. She was, what, two years old? My dad was driving too fast. I'm like, really? <laughs> okay. If you know Sophie, that describes it. That's the way. He wasn't doing it. Take him to jail. 
Not really. Let us go to Christmas first. Okay? And then you have the person who's like the, the rebel. They just, you know, and we're working that out. You've got these kids. Maybe you, this describes you. You're probably one or the other. Okay, what's God's answer to these two ditches? It's this. It's a relationship. It's a true relationship with the Father. Keeping us out of the ditch of, I've done all these things, and I'm religious, and I'm rebellious, and I don't need any rules, and I do my own thing. Where would God bring us to? It's a right relationship. A right relationship with him, and a right relationship with others. This morning, we're going to look at Galatians 5, the first 15 verses. And Paul writes this, and it's really a continuation of where we ended last week. Paul's discourse about the slave woman gave birth to a son who was a slave and everyone who is going into Judaism, religious keeping, whatever that is, you're a child of the slave. You're going into slavery. For freedom, he says in chapter 5, verse 1, and this is the key verse of the whole letter. Freedom. Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again. Don't get entangled up again into a yoke of slavery. Look, or behold, I, Paul, say this to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brothers, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, summed up in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the living God been studying through this passage, through this letter, Paul is dealing with the Judaizers. Like, maybe this is one of your first weeks here. Like, what is circumcision? and What is all going on? Circumcision is the entrance into becoming a formal Jew. And as we see this morning, Paul is laying out the case. If you submit to anything that is of the law, your own doing, you are foregoing the gospel. So he's dealing with these. But as we've said in the recent weeks, Paul understands the argument very well. 
But if the Galatian believers do not come to full understanding and then do something about it, the churches are in harm's way. Paul could have come there. Paul could have argued it. Your pastors can stand up in various conversations that happen in and around the community. But if the people of God do not learn and grow and stand up and give a defense for the gospel and the implications that it comes in our relationships, then damage will be done. You'll bite and devour one another. All in front of a watching world. All in front of children who are watching. Peace and harmony or chaos, division, and destruction. What's the word that you would use to describe our nation right now? Oh, peace, harmony, love, 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 everybody getting along. Not so, is it? See, all of these principles are true for every relationship. Right now, the world is watching, and we're embarrassing. The way that we're functioning, the way that we're conducting ourselves, and social media, and everything that goes with it is embarrassing. Same is true for a family. How we handle ourselves and how we deal in our relationships and there's children watching and there's neighbors watching and there's coworkers watching. And how we deal with one another, is it in love or is it in law? Is it forgiving or is it condemning? Is it gracious or is it, I'll cut you off and turn my back on you. The world is watching. It all comes with implications. Is it a little foretaste of heaven when people interact with us, with you? Or is it a little glimpse of hell? Satan doesn't know anything about forgiveness. The demons don't know anything about forgiveness. Know nothing about love. When we show love, when we show forgiveness, when we show grace, it's a little taste of heaven. It's a little glimpse of what God has done in us by the power of his Holy Spirit. So how can we have this joy? How can we, who have been called to freedom, live out this freedom? Okay, it's one thing, and we celebrate it, and we blow stuff up every July 4th, right? Especially Aaron. He loves to blow stuff up. Woo, we're free. It's one thing to earn and gain freedom, and that came at great sacrifice. It's another thing to keep it. How many had to memorize uh, the Gettysburg Address for a school? Raise your hand. See what age it stopped, Right? Four score and seven years ago, right? Now I started and you're like running through it in your head, you know? To see whether this, and I'm, I'm losing the phrase, how long it will endure, right? I'm forgetting the exact words in there. I didn't pull it up. I could have Josh Google it real fast. But he's, he puts in there, how will you handle this? We'll see. You've been given freedom. What are you going to do with it? You have a responsibility in this freedom. Wait a second. I thought I was just free to do what I want. Well, that's great if it's a song used by, you know, back in the 60s. Free, do what I want. You're like, yeah, Mick Jagger, he's my man. Great song. But is it true? Is it true? So we have to define. We're going to have three questions this morning. What is gospel freedom? What are the threats against gospel freedom? What's the result? Okay, very practical this morning. Is that's what Paul's doing in these texts. What is gospel freedom? Let's define this practically this morning. Verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. He uses a double up there. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again. What are we free from? 
What have we been as believers set free from? We've been given freedom from slavery to sin. As long as a person is enslaved to sin, they are separated from God. They're not in a right relationship with God and it doesn't matter what you do, religiously speaking, you cannot breach the gap. Christ has set us free. He's given us freedom. I, every time I hear that word, you know, it's Mel Gibson in Braveheart, freedom. It just comes, it just sounds out in my head, freedom. But what do you do with this freedom? How has Christ set us free? What has he given to us? He has set us free from sin's penalty. That's the past. It's done. The wages of sin is death. Okay? He set us free from the penalty of sin, but he's also in his death, burial, and resurrection set us free from the power of sin, that sin no longer reigns over the child of God. I don't have to sin, but I still struggle with sin. Romans 7, I'm still incarcerated in this tabernacle of flesh, and you are too. So your spouse, your children, your boss, your fellow church members will get under your skin. They'll bother you. They'll aggravate you. They'll upset you. They'll disappoint you. And our response to that is not always pleasing to the Lord, or maybe I'm the only one. Okay, I guess I am. I don't think so. One day we'll be saved from sin's very presence. We'll be glorified. And this is what Christ has done. Sin's penalty, sin's power, and it'll come up here. Sin's presence. That when we are with Christ, all things are made new. Revelation 21, a new heaven, a new earth, no more death, no more tears, no more sin, no more struggling. We will be at, and the Bible describes it in the terminology of comfort, and that is finally at home. And as long as, beloved, as long as we're trying to make our, our ultimate home here, you're never at home. There's a restlessness that remains in us until we find our rest in God. So we have glimpses of doing wonderful things to make a house a home, but we always know this isn't the final resting place. This isn't where we're really at home. There's always a longing in us. We're always saying goodbye to people, to ones that we love. But one day, not just sin's penalty, not just sin's power, but we'll be given freedom from sin's presence in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're given freedom for something. It's not just the negative that we're free from sin, but there's a purpose for our freedom, and that is we're given freedom for life in Christ. That's why Paul is able to say, stand firm, therefore. Okay, this comes with implications. This comes with a responsibility. This comes with, you can't lose your salvation, but you can lose your freedom. You can stand by idly and let people like the Judaizers who are bringing their opinions, their thoughts, their perspectives, which are going over and above scripture, and you can lose your freedom. We are given freedom for life in Christ. We're not free to return to slavery. We don't want to go back into sin. Talking with someone yesterday, they're dealing with a severe sickness right now. If they're delivered from that sickness, they're not going to say, can I go back into that again? Can I have some more of that sickness? 
If you've gone through cancer and you're cancer-free, you don't say, you know what I'm thinking today? Maybe I, maybe I, you know, I miss those people down at whatever cancer institute you went to. I, I'd like to see them again. Maybe. No, if you're set free, you don't want to go back. You want to live healthy. You want to be uh, whole. We're given freedom for life in Christ. We don't want to return to the slavery of being under the law, going back under it's my religious deeds that I think will save me. No, we're finally made new and able to live for our purpose. So in Paul's time, the Jews had a saying. Every week almost, you will hear me saying, or Pastor Jamie, if you are here without Christ, turn from your sin and trust in Christ. This is the gospel, that Jesus lived the life that you could never live. He died on the cross. He was raised to life again to give you the life that you could never earn and you don't deserve. So trust in Jesus. Come to Jesus. Every week you will hear that. Here's what the Judaizers would have said. Take the law, the yoke of the law on you. Sign here. How would you do that? Men, circumcision. They would be inviting other people, not national Jews, not Israelites. You want to become, come into Judaism, Judaism and here's your way through circumcision. So perhaps Paul has this in mind. We're not going back under that yoke because why not? We're children of God. We're not slaves. We're children of God. We are sons. We're not employed by God. We're his children. What do you do with employees if they don't do, you know, if they're doing wrong? If they're not doing what they are supposed to do, you either put them on warning or you get rid of them. We're not God's employees. We're his children. What do you do with children who are the rebellious or whatever? They're still your child. And then you say, your spouse. They're acting like your spouse. That's, that's what I always try. And it doesn't always work. Oh, they're, you know, when they're doing well, oh, they look just like me. They're acting just like me. When they're not, they're like, hey, you're acting just like your mother. And that always goes over like a lead balloon. We're children of God. He's not going to get rid of us. He's not going to abandon us. He's not going to send us back. He knew exactly who he was purchasing when he died and shed his blood on the cross. We're his children. We've been set free. So don't go back into slavery. Don't get entangled with the law again. He said, this, this is our freedom. We can lose our freedom. What's happened in us? Our desires have changed. When he adopted us and made us his child, we no longer have a desire to serve and please ourselves. We want to serve Christ. We want to serve others in a way that's pleasing to God and pleasing to other people. Listen, if you hear somebody like, I don't care what people think. This is who I am. That's not Christian. It's not Christ-like. Our desires have changed. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, our abilities have changed. Before coming to know Christ, you have no victory over sin. When you're in Christ, you have the power of the risen Savior living in you. There's no sin. There's no temptation has taken you, but such as is common to men. And with every temptation, God is faithful to make a way of escape, 1 Corinthians 10 says. So the question becomes, there's the way out. Here's the temptation. Am I going to engage in sin or run like Joseph? We're all dealing with that. But I want every time to run like Joseph. Because I want to please the Lord. 
My abilities have changed because my nature has been changed. I've been given a new birth. God in Christ lives in me. It's what Jesus was talking with Nicodemus about in John chapter three. You must be born again. And if you're not born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And every time I hear John 3, 3, I think about the lady whose grandparents were religious. Her parents were religious. She was religious. Her children were in religious school. And she scooted over next to me at gymnastics. And she said, I have a question for you. What does it mean to be born again? And my heart's broke for that lady because she was religious, religious, religious. And the one thing that Jesus said, you must be born again. If you're not born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And that's all she was missing. That's to miss Christ. That's to miss salvation. So this is what the gospel is. There's the clarification of its definition. Number two, what threatens gospel freedom? Okay, now we can ask the question, do you have this gospel freedom? Have you been set free from sin? Have you been set free for life in Christ? And for you this morning, that's a yes or no, or maybe you're not sure. Oh, I pray that today does not end without you settling and knowing Christ. Amen? What threatens this gospel freedom? It's a clear and present danger. It was 2,000 years ago, and it surely is today. We're going to look at some of these. In verse 2, Paul says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, and then he gives four, uh, four consequences that are bad, okay? Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified for the law, you have fallen away from grace. There's a lot here, okay? There's a lot here. Any emphasis, okay, this is a threat. Any emphasis upon self-righteousness is a threat to the gospel. It's a threat to gospel freedom. That's works righteousness, okay? So when a religious person comes and they say, well, Jesus is a good prophet. Jesus is a good teacher, but you need to be baptized. You need to make a pilgrimage. You need to pray this many times a day. You need to be in this t uh, Bible translation. You need this, that, whatever. Jesus plus anything. In mathematical terms, you lose Jesus. It's minus Jesus. You lose Jesus. There's one song in heaven, and it is not, Jesus is worthy, and I'm not that bad. No. To say that is to lose the point and the emphasis on your first statement. If I say, Jesus is awesome, and I'm pretty great too. It diminishes my first statement because it scoots, it's trying to push me up in, in my opinion, and my position, and my preferences, to be on par with Jesus. And whenever religion says, well, Jesus, but then his mother, his mother is very important. And so she's on par and we pray to her and she intercedes. And when you say the church, you have to be in the church and then you're guaranteed salvation or your marriage has to be in the church in this particular way or, or you have to have communion or anything. And you lose Jesus. That's a big loss. Because it's serious. Now, this week, I'm so thankful for you people. You love your pastor so much. You're so encouraged by the sermons that a few of you, they were li listening last week. You helped me, and these were on my book this week as I was studying. If you give a moose a muffin, that's a book that came in. If you give a pig a party, like here, pastor, read these. If you take a mouse to the movies, if you give a cat a cupcake, if you give a pig a pancake, 
if you give a dog a donut, and this all came off of, I quoted this book last week. I just mentioned, you remember, if you give a legalist any leeway in the door, and if you've ever read these books, they're hilarious. They're so funny. If you give a mouse a cookie, he doesn't say, thank you for the cookie. That would be a boring book. It goes to the next thing. It goes to the next thing. And then suddenly the whole house is turned upside down and it all started with, you gave a mouse a cookie. Paul, this is humorous. Paul is using it in a way to say, if you give in to the very, just this, this right here, that's all you have to do. Just, just be circumcised. He said, don't do it. Because there's more damage and more fallout than you read in any of those books that won't stop there. That's just the threshold. It's going to go further than you want to go. There's only two types of approaches to God. It's either by faith or it's by works. We're either trusting in Christ or we're trying harder. We either believe and have received the gospel and it transforms us, or we're trying to, on our own, morally, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and do better, and hopefully God will be okay, and he'll weigh out, you know, my good and my bad, and hopefully my good outweighs my bad. You, you wouldn't believe how many people believe in that. To accept any approach that mingles our efforts with Christ's accomplishments with religious deeds and Christ's accomplishments, it brings real consequences. Now, Paul's terminology here seems to apply they haven't taken the step yet. They're on the threshold. They're considering it. They're thinking about it. They're probably saying, but these are such nice teachers. They're so nice, and they use the Bible, and they're kind, and they, they smile, and they're just so nice. But Paul is saying, understand their fruit. Understand the result, the end of their ways, their teaching. There's consequences. He gives four. Is it that big of a deal, Paul? Yes. You accept their teaching, Christ is of no, no advantage to you. All the benefit that Christ accomplished in his life, death, burial, and resurrection is neutralized in your life nullified on your behalf. It's regarded as worthless. To add works is to subtract Christ. That's the first consequence of just going a little ways with the legalizer and saying, well, we'll just do this. We'll just accept their terms in this way. This is what Chrysostom said centuries ago. You have to track with me. This is, this is old school words here, okay? He who is circumcised is circumcised as fearing the law. But he who fears the law distrusts the power of grace. And he who distrusts gains nothing from that which he distrusts. Let's just do a little law. That means I'm not trusting wholly in grace. If I trust a little bit in the law, I lose all all the advantages of grace because it's not a shared deal. It's not 99% God saved me and I 1%, I prayed the right words. 
Maybe you've wrestled with some of these things. Maybe you've wrestled with at times wondering and even what we read here of falling away and, and do I belong to Christ or I don't belong to Christ? What are we seeing in our lives? The second consequence, he says, you're obligated to keep the whole law. And the word means you're putting yourself under. You're signing the, law, the line. If you've ever bought a house, how many times do you actually sign your name in all those paperwork? All those stacks of papers. Sign here, sign here, sign exactly this way. And what are they not doing? Um, yeah, I'm going to sign for the gutters. And I'm going to sign for the sidewalk. I want to live in the house, but can I just sign for these? Like, no, no, this is the address. This is the legal address. This is going under your name and you're responsible to pay for it. All of it. Well, what if the plumbing goes bad? It's yours. What if the electricity is not good? The circuit, but yep, that's yours. It's all yours. So you're signing here. You understand what you're signing. Understand what you're signing. You put your name on the line. It belongs to you. You're responsible for it. Paul says, if you go with them one step, you give a mouse a cookie, you go one law into it with the legalists and you're responsible for the whole law. 613 commands in the law. And it's not just from here forward on my signing, it's for all of my life. What does that mean? That's impossible. But that's what you signed on to. Don't go back into slavery. Don't listen to them. The third consequence he mentions, you're severed from Christ. You want to try to be justified by your own actions? You're severed from Christ. You're alienated from Christ. You cannot, I cannot have it both ways, that Jesus is great and I'm pretty great too. No. He said the last consequence, you've fallen away from grace. You say, well, wait a second. Does that mean... And someone interpret that, you, you can lose your salvation, that you were once in grace. But if you go this way, then you've fallen from grace. And does that mean, pastor, that you can lose your salvation? That is not what it means. Here's what it means. You're either falling on the law, you're falling on your own works, you're always under condemnation, you're always under your own standard, you're always under, here's what I've done, here's what I do, here's what I need to do, here are the things that I don't do, and you're falling on that, and you're always falling in that realm, or you fall on grace. And when I sin and when you sin, I'm still falling where? In grace. So you can do whatever you want because you're falling on grace? No. Shall we sin that grace may abound? Romans 6, 1, God forbid. No way. Because I know who I was. I know who's redeemed me. I belong to him. I'm his child and I don't want to. But when I stumble and when I fall, guess where I'm falling? In grace, on grace. I'm still standing in grace. But if you're trusting in, well, here's what I've done, you can't trust in what you've done and what Christ has done. They're mutually exclusive. They're not the same. I said in the first service, it's like this. If I say my wife is amazing and there's a lot of other amazing women too, that second statement is appalling to the first. It cancels the first. Like that just diminished what you said. If I say, I think Jesus is amazing and I'm doing a lot of good works, it's worse. It would be unacceptable for a husband to say, well, what? I said you were amazing first. Yeah, that didn't gain any favor because you took all other women and you put them on par with me. Hold up, time out. That's not going to work. 
right? But somehow people think religiously that that should be okay to the God who made everything? Why would I come to church an hour and a half a week? Does that sound right? You're sensible people. You have to work through these issues, but it's pretty clear of what he's teaching. Christ is either all of our value or practically speaking, he is of no value to us. And this is a struggle for us busy Americans who have so much going on and so much to do and so many places to be and this, that, and the next thing. But is Christ that pearl of great price, the gospel? Aren't we always in danger of forgetting what he's done for us and who he is? Do any of those warnings describe a place where a Christian would want to be? Jesus is no advantage to me. Yeah, I'll go ahead and sign on to keeping the whole law. Severed from Christ? That's not that bad of a deal. Fallen away from grace? Okay. Does that sound like a Christian? No. No. So 1 John 2.19 is helpful when we're trying to understand that um, the Apostle John says, they went out from us. Well, why? All of us here know people who used to say, I love Jesus too. And as you think about them this morning, you think about choices they've made in their lives, and you say, I wonder where they are. Okay, because we're not perfect and we're not omniscient and we don't know where people are spiritually, but God does. He knows his. But what's an explanation? Did they lose their salvation? No. John is saying they never were saved. They didn't belong to Christ. And so they went out from us because they weren't of us. That reveals in time, trials come, testing comes, whatever it may be. And they say, check, please, I'm out. I tried the Christian thing. It didn't work well for me. People treated me wrong, whatever happened, and I'm done with this. They, they were never fully resting on grace. Maybe they came into the fellowship and they liked the camaraderie and they liked the things going on. And then as they got to know people and people got to know them, it got, the walls got a little close and they're like, that's a little too close for me. I'm gonna go ahead and go back into my isolated life because that, that was more where I could control things and my pre presentation of... Any emphasis upon self-righteousness, beloved, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. The second threat, any minimization of the Holy Spirit. Verse five, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. How exactly is anyone saved? It's by the Spirit's working in our life that he opens blind eyes. He raises to life the spiritually dead. So when Paul writes to Titus in Titus chapter three, and in verse four, he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. This is, when I say works righteousness, self-righteousness, false righteousness, religious deeds, that's what he's saying. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but he saved us according 
to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's God's spirit doing this changing. And verse six says, whom he poured out on us, how? Richly. Okay, when a person comes to faith in Christ, he gets all of the Holy Spirit, not a part of it. And then you got to do some works and work it up and then do some spirit things. And then he'll give you more of his spirit. We have all of his spirit through Jesus Christ, our savior. Verse seven, so that, here's the purpose clause, being justified by his grace, not our works, but by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. How do you become an heir? You have to be born into the family. You have to be adopted into the family or marry into the family. And if somebody finds someone who is a, an heir to a fortune and they pretend to love them and they marry in to get the fortune, who regards that as love? Everybody's like, wait a second, how old is that guy? How old is she? How old is he? How old? What? What's going on here? Oh, I love him. Really? Do you? I don't know. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But anybody can see that someone comes in and then someone passes away, they get the inheritance and they flush every other person in the family like, oh, there's the motive. What is the motive then for doing works to try to get part of the inheritance? That's, the, that's how it, it's juxtaposed against each other. It's either Christ, his work, or it's my work. He gives me inheritance or I try to earn it or I'm gonna steal my way in or sneak my way in or pretend love in. Doesn't work. Any minimization of the Holy Spirit. So what we'll be like when we're completed? It's exactly how, how God sees us now in Christ. Now think about this. When you see the person in the mirror, do you see a finished product? Is that what you said when you saw yourself in the mirror this morning? If you belong to Christ, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Is that what you said? Like, no, brush your teeth. You're not here, you know, shave, fix your hair, get a haircut. All these things are going through my mind. I see imperfection. I don't see myself the way God sees me. You don't see yourself the way God sees you. I guarantee you, you don't. He sees you in Christ. He sees you clothed in Christ. He sees you in Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He already knows the finished product. He's not giving up. He's not giving you back. He's not quitting. He will complete the work that he began in you, Philippians 1, 6 says. And so he knows it all. And he loved you anyway. And he loved me anyway. And he has forgiven us. We're not his friends. We were his enemies that he made us his children. This is the gospel. This is what leads to holy lives and serving and not free to do whatever I want, but free to please my good father in heaven. Another threat, anything that diminishes the work of Jesus. Verse six, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, their religious adherence, all moral obeying the laws or uncircumcision. That's paganism, immorality, the rebel, the woohoo, live it all up. You only live once party, okay? Both sides. In either of those, neither counts for anything but only faith working, and that's energizing through love. Our successes, our failures, they count for nothing. There you go. There's a positive message our pastor gave us today. All the good I've done, all the bad I've done, worthless. 
I need Christ. We all have access to Christ. So there's nothing to boast in. And you can't be too far gone. It's Jesus. It's faith that is working through love, not our working our faith. It's his energy in us working. It's his grace working in us. It's faith working us in the spirit, in love. It works out love. If it's his faith, it comes out in love and in grace. There's another threat. Verses seven to 10. Anyone who hinders others from obeying the truth. And here he uses an analogy from athletics. And then he moves into the kitchen. He says this in verse seven. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. I've told you before about Bob. This kid was a runner, but not really a runner. And we went to competition in Wisconsin. And he was running a mile. And the gun went off in the indoor track. University of Wisconsin, Oshkosh. Bob took out of the, just running full out. Everybody's like, whoa, he's probably going to set a record. He made it one lap around, and he was doing the unmentionable on the inside of the indoor track. He didn't make it. He didn't finish the race. He wasn't ready for that. He didn't have a clue what he was doing, and he just went guns blazing and didn't finish the race. There's another from 1984, the Olympics. Was anybody watching this race with Mary Decker and Zola Budd? I remember this, and it fits with even the theme because Zola Budd was a barefoot runner. Anybody remember this? Los Angeles, 1984. And I remember being a kid watching this, being like, not wearing shoes. What is this? You know, we were, you were supposed to wear shoes. Who does she think she is? Whatever. I'm kidding. I'm the legalist guy. That's my normal function of, you should have shoes on. You know? Why, why, why does a kid even care? I don't even know, but I'm bothered that she didn't have shoes. That's not the point of this illustration. Something happened and she tripped or Mary Decker tripped, okay? And suddenly it went from Mary Decker, this great athlete, America's favorite girl, and she went from gonna win the race to laying in the infield. And they still, in the camera footage is bad. You can't quite see what happened. And they ask Mary Decker after that race in the press box, you know, and the, they come to the table and she's like, Zola Bud tried to ask you for forgiveness. What did you say? And she's like, I got no forgiveness for her. Now, since then, I haven't seen it. They've made a movie. They've worked together and they've come together on some things. I, I, I need to find out about that story. Here's the point. She was running well. What happened? When Paul is saying, he's using an athletic terminology, you were running well. When I left you, you were saying, can we give you our eyes? I know we can't, but we want to so that you could see where you go. We love you so much. We're so thankful that you brought the gospel to us and you delivered us through the power of the Holy Spirit and powerful works have been done. We're so thankful for Paul. We love you. We love you. And they say goodbye to him. Love. And then he hears of this. You're laying on the inside of the trek. You're, you're arguing, laws going on, you're fighting like the Corinthians. What happened? They still don't know what happened. You know, theories and whatnot. Listen, as we think about this, there's a source of all division. There's a source of all distraction. And it's not heaven. It's hell. Satan showed up in the garden after the marriage. And that was the last perfect marriage. 
in church relationships? Paul is saying to them, what happened? Who hindered you? You were running well. It only takes a little amount of bad to greatly damage the community of believers. Just a little bit of yeast. And it permeates the whole loaf. That's his analogy from the kitchen. So you have to deal with it. You can't just say, well, that's just a little bit, not that big of a deal. But our confidence must remain in Christ. Do you hear what Paul says? He's like, I'm not confident in you. I'm confident in the Lord that you will come to your senses, that you will remember, you will hear, you will remember, and you will do what is pleasing to the Lord. For those who undermine the gospel, for those who seek to devalue gospel preachers, do you see what Paul says here? Condemnation is coming. And he's not gloating in this. And he's not wielding this as a, I am the man and you listen to me. He's the truth. He stands for the truth and he will do whatever it takes for the truth. But he said, the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. The one that is causing division, the Lord knows who this one is. The Lord knows who that is in any gathering of believers and he or she will bear the penalty. That's sobering, isn't it? I find that sobering. So let me ask you this morning, who is it that helps you? Who encourages you? Who is it that might hinder you? Who are you helping? Who are you encouraging? Who might you be hindering? These are the questions that we have to ask ourselves. Am I help? Am I helping? Is my hand actively involved in helping in the congregation or do I leave that on everyone else to do? How am I helping? Not in my own way, on my own terms, on my own time. How am I submitted and helping and serving as needs to be done in the family of God? We do well to not run off from that quickly but to seriously evaluate our priorities. There's another threat, and it's any religious tradition that downplays the message of the cross. Verses 11 and 12, for brothers, but if I, brothers, he's using that terminology, we're a family, I love you. He's pulling them in close, he's dealing with them, they've got to get some strength under him, they've got to man up. If I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. This is a shocking verse. This is a verse that no pastor in his right mind ever, anywhere would ever be like, here's my screensaver. Here's the series we're going into. Uh, you know, Galatians uh, 5.12. No way. But it's shocking because it's, it's out of the norm. Paul is clearing up the confusion here. I believe that because Paul said to Titus, no, you're not going to be circumcised. But to Timothy, who was half Jewish, half Gentile, his father was a Greek, his mother was a Jew. In Acts 16, Paul says, Timothy, we're going to be ministering to Jewish people and they're going to be doubting your love of your mother's heritage. 
So why don't we remove that objection and you go ahead and be circumcised. Let's get this done so that when we can go, Jewish people will listen to us knowing that you love your mother's heritage. Okay, for the sake of the gospel, I'll do that. Not that it is the gospel. It has nothing to do with Timothy's salvation. It has everything to do with his effectiveness. Now, when it came to Titus, the false teachers were saying he can't be a good Christian or even a Christian if he's not a Jew. Paul said, no way, not going there. Now, when Paul deals with these false teachers and he uses this super graphic terminology, he could be referring to there were cults, feministic cults and whatnot, just like in a king's uh, palace, he would have eunuchs. Eunuchs would pose no threat to stealing the line of the king, so they would serve in his harem, they would serve with his wives, and they posed no threat to the king. When Paul uses this, he's connecting there was a cult that they would go all the way and, and be castrated. And he's saying, for these false teachers, why not just go all the way so that you can't have any descendants? It's a strong, shocking way to say, get out of here. Leave. Stop sowing your bad teaching, your legalism, your laws, your works-based righteousness, your opinions. Get out of here. I don't want you to have any descendants. Why? Because if they bear fruit in the church, then the church doesn't bear fruit for the kingdom of God. And just let one in, just let a few in, and they bring their opinion. Well, I think that Halloween, I think that Christmas, you can't, oh, I think that this, I think that that, oh, that's a pretty good point. Sign on to one little cookie, and you get the whole law. Make sense? That's what Paul's saying. And he used shocking terminology. It was offensive today. It was offensive then. For a reason. He's serious. It's not going to diminish the cross. If you make your work something, then you diminish the work of the cross. And I wasn't dismissing the cross. The cross is an emblem of suffering and shame. So he said, we're not leaving the cross. It's the message of the cross. And the world says it's foolishness. And the Judaizers are like, well, the cross. But here's what you got to do to be a good Christian. Just do this. Just do that. Observe these days. Observe those days. Do these things. Don't eat these foods. Wait a second. I thought you just said I had to be circumcised. No. Once you signed on the line, you got it all. And it's impossible. So Paul's angry. He deals with them. John Stott says, if we were as concerned for God's church and God's word as Paul was, we too would wish that false teachers might cease from the land. In Leviticus, that would be banished, right? So how aware are we, beloved, of threats against unity in the church, threats against the gospel, and threats against those who teach and preach? the gospel to us. Are we, are we aware of these or we just don't know they exist or not a big deal or they're very present and a danger. So what's the result? Number three, third question. What's the result of gospel freedom? We see this in the closing. He's going somewhere for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. We're not serving the flesh. We used to serve the flesh. We don't serve the flesh anymore, but through love serve one another. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. Here he's quoted in Leviticus. Jesus uh, used this with the rich young ruler. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Here's what he's saying. What is the result? What has God done for us? We are born again into a new family. This is a spiritual birth. We're born again into a new family. This is who we are. We're brothers and sisters. We're given freedom. We're not only born again into a new family, but we serve one another and no longer are we serving our flesh. Well, here's what I think. Here's what I want. Here's what I, well, God told me you. Show me that in the Bible. I can't. Then save it. That's your opinion. And I am not enslaved to anybody's opinions. And if you're a child of God, neither are you. You are free. Free to live for Christ. And Paul is concerned about them. We serve one another. This is what we do. We're not serving our flesh. When you're close in relationship, that's what starts to get on the nerves. You get close to people, spouse, spouse, and difficulty and friction. Yeah, that's all part of it. But we're not serving in the power of the flesh. We're serving the power of the Spirit of God. So Paul says, if you keep on the track that you're going, then look at this picture released in in Mexico, uh, News Daily, June 24th, 2017. This is the day that in Mexico, they they legally banned dogfighting. It's a news story out of Mexico News Daily. And you could see, look at the spectators that they have this picture of all around watching these dogs fight. There's much more graphic pictures out there. Not, not, this one is not as bad. If you think this is bad and this plays on your emotions, Paul uses the terminology that says, if you think this bad, and it is, this is bad, you don't separate, you don't put your hand in there and say, stop dogs, little nice doggy over here. No, nothing good comes out of this. Everybody agree with that? And everybody's watching. Do you see the graphic terminology that he's doing? He's saying what you're doing in the church of the living God is worse than that. Because you're forgetting your children are watching. Your parents, maybe who are not believers, are watching. Your neighbors are watching. Your coworkers, people are watching. You're like, I didn't know they were watching. And above all, the angels are watching and God is watching. The angels stoop in and they see what is this worship of these believers. They see the lamb slain for sinners and they see the sinners who have been redeemed by the lamb and they care about our worship. And when we bite and devour and fight and don't forgive and go back and forth and find, I'll go to this other church. Well, I'll go to that other church and they'll do it my way, that way over here, over back and forth. That's what it looks like, only worse. It's inviting hell up instead of heaven down. And I'm just wondering, What do our relationships look like? Grace and forgiveness or law, condemnation? You didn't meet my demands, I'm out. Oh, Paul is so concerned for them. Contrast this picture with this picture. When a congregation does what Jesus said, John 13, took the position of the slave, washed his disciples' feet, and says, do you know what I've done to you? Yeah, you washed our feet. No. Yes, I did. But the greatest of all, and every Christian would say, yes, Jesus is the greatest of all. 
he became the least of all. And he suffered shame and reproach. And the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And when he looks at the men that he loved and he said, do you know what I've done for you? Do this. But then we say, well, I would for the people. that These are my circle. I'll do it for these people, but not for them. That's biting and devouring. Humble service. Lifelong service. Never giving up service. Dave Stanley. He was a prayer warrior till he died. So you mean, whatever I do, I have to keep doing forever? You do as long as you are able to in whatever field that you are and we are praying, God, raise up others to take our place and then our role will change. Our ministry will change and we'll become a leader of leaders in different ways. And the greatest of all is a servant of all. Just wondering what what characterizes our lives. So when we serve, we're not motivated by fear, we're motivated by love. That's what God does for us. This is the result. We're born again to a new family. You're my brother. You're my sister. We're in the family of God. We're not going anywhere. We're going to spend eternity together. We have a big brother, Jesus, who laid down his life. He served us. He died for us. So we serve one another, not our flesh, and we're motivated by love, not fear to serve. Love motivates me to serve. I'll do a whole lot more out of love than I will out of fear. And so will you, because we're in a relationship together. This is beautiful in the sight of God, our Savior. So in light of today's message, it really can be summed up the whole series. How do we stand firm in grace? How? Well, we gotta be able to identify what gospel freedom is. We gotta know what the threats are. And then we see the fruit active in our lives, your life. This isn't, I, yeah, I think they need to be serving. I wonder if, where they serve. This is, where are you serving? Where is your hand actively involved in the family of God? Serving him his people, all of them. Do you belong to Christ? Do you know this freedom? If not, today. Trust in Christ. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Let's stand together. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus We thank you for the change that you brought in Paul's life. You saved him and you changed him. You used him powerfully. Father, I pray that you will help us. I thank you for your love. I thank you for the privilege that we have to serve, to share in ministry in this family together. I pray that you will forge us together, Lord. I can preach, but my words cannot do anything You have to take these words from a broken person and you by your spirit have to sink them into the hearts of the hearers, Lord, and bring fruit, fruit of the spirit, not works of the flesh. So we confess to you, Lord, we need you. We are totally and utterly dependent on you. So may we live in community together, giving freely and receiving freely your grace, your love, your mercy, your forgiveness. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.